Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today, my guest is someone that you probably already know. It's Laura McCowan. She's the best-selling author of We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life. She's the founder of The Luckiest Club, an international sobriety support community, and has been published in the New York Times. Her work's been featured in The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, The Today Show, and more. Today, we're talking about her second book, Push Off From Here, Nine Essential Truths to Get You Through Sobriety and Everything Else. And it's being released this week. So and before anything else, I just want to welcome you, Laura. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So happy to be here with you, Casey. Yeah, I'm excited because I've been reading your book over the last two weeks and like underlining absolutely everything and posting it on social. Um, we can talk about it. You had a quiz there about like, is drinking your thing? And I went through and I circled like, I forget, there were 44 things. I think I circled 30 of them thinking back around when I was drinking. So yeah, it is spot on. 
Thank you. Yeah. I thought it was, I wanted to come up with a better quiz because I thought the the 12 question one that's out there, or tw- it's either 12 or 20, depending on which one you look at, didn't quite cover the internal stuff that goes on. That's more telling. So yeah, to the me, internal stuff, you know, it's so funny, even with the 12 questions, I was like, oh, I'm seven out of 12. And then I was like, because I've never stayed home from work because I was hungover. And then I was like, unless you count me going to work, feeling like garbage coming home midday because I told people like that somehow is different, you know? Yeah. You could like squeeze out of the questions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Anyone who's read We Are the Luckiest probably has read your nine things because it's listed right at the beginning before mm-hmm. you go into the book itself. Is there any chance just as we get started, could you read them to us? Oh, sure. Uh, I have them memorized because we say them in every every TLC meeting. And obviously, I wrote a book on them. So I don't even need to read them. I will just say them. These are the nine things. One, it is not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility. Three, it's unfair that this is your thing. Four. This is your thing. Five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Six, you can't do it alone. Seven, only you can do it. Eight, you are loved. And nine, we will never stop reminding you of these things. Yeah. I know which one I thought of those sort of nine truths that was the hardest one and the most important one for me to accept. But do you have one of those nine that you're like, yeah, this is the big one that tripped me up. And the one that once I accepted this truth really helped me move forward. Yeah, absolutely. It was, you can't do it alone. All right. For me, it was, this is your thing. You know, yeah, yes. that for me was the one I fought against for the longest time, trying yeah. to be like, it's not a thing, you know, like nothing to see here. Move along. Yep. It's a lot for a lot of people. And I fought, I fought against that too. I mean, yeah, big time. Yeah. But the harder part for me yeah. was not being, knowing I, I realizing or admitting or surrender to the fact that I couldn't do it alone. I really wanted to. Yeah. I really didn't want other people to watch me go through what I had to go through. Well, so can you talk about that one in particular? Sure. You know, and it's just a lot of these are juxtaposed against each other. So it's not your fault and it is your responsibility. And before um, this is comes before only you can do it. So it's you can't do it alone and only you can do it. People tend to lean one way or the other, I think. And for me, that you can't do it alone is such a anti-American message. It's such a we we want to believe and we love to think of the individual as all powerful and able to manifest whatever reality they want or need or could imagine. And a lot of self-help even teaches us that, you know, it's the, it's the legacy of the West. And in some ways it's beautiful. The, the idea that there's all this power inside of you and that 
if you know that that if you just dig in hard enough that that it's a meritocracy right if you yeah, if you just put it, in the effort meritocracy if you just put in the effort it's going to yield the reward of equal measure and it's not the case for so many things for so many reasons and for me i had really prized myself and one of my major coping mechanisms was just to not be needy, to to be very independent, to not, um, you know, to be smart enough and capable enough and on all those, all, everything enough to just power through on my own. And I had always been told that I was so resilient and I was so strong and I was, I was able, you know, I, I was capable and all those things that I had that had gotten me really far. You know, I have, I am resilient. I, uh, I have a good bounce back, you know, it's, it's um, a quality of mine. I've been able to, I had always been able to push through somehow on willpower or <laughs> luck or motivation or all these things that, that really do carry us far, but in some areas of life, they're not enough. Mm-hmm. A- and th- I, I had a really hard time allowing that to be true. It felt like weakness. It felt gross, felt embarrassing, felt humiliating. And what ha- what has to happen when you allow to you allow yourself to say that you need help and you allow other people in is that they have to see you and see what's really going on. And you have to admit that you're out of depth and yeah. that sucks. It sucks. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I remember when I finally kind of started opening up to people. I did it, you know, on a secret private Facebook group seven years ago. And as I was going through early sobriety, I realized that I was telling this group of strangers so much more than my, even my best friend knew about Mm. me or certainly my husband, because I didn't tell him a lot of it. Um, you know, I only told him the acceptable parts of what was hard, which is my boss is a nightmare and I have too much stress and the schedule is crazy. Um, but I didn't tell anyone all the things you see everyone and you're like, oh, life is fine. You tell them like the surface difficulties as a way to bond, but not the real stuff. And part of it is like, I don't think they want to hear it or they won't understand or they'll tell me to stop drinking or to go to marriage counseling or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Right. We want to protect our drinking too. Yeah. Like I'm not going to tell you how bad it is cuz I don't want to like you said have to stop. Yeah. Well, so how did you take those first steps of you can't do it alone? Cuz I mean it is scary. Yeah, I mean I did it absolutely and only when I had had to because my back was just against the wall and I had to try to do something to stop drinking because everyone in my life, well, the, not everyone, but you know, my immediate family, my co-parent, my, my daughter's uh, father, who was, we were separated at the time, but like they were watching. And if I didn't start to get my shit together, I was going to lose my daughter and who knows what else, Mm -hmm. but it was her, it was the losing potential of losing her that I wouldn't, I couldn't cope with that. So I was forced into it. And what I did was I didn't go (laughs) like to my first 
12-step meeting seeking help. I mm-hmm. really didn't. I was like, I'm going to check this box. I'm going to learn how to get sober on my own type of thing. You know, I wasn't actually looking for help. So it kind of happened on accident. Um, that, And what I found, <clears throat> what a lot of people find is you go into these spaces and you hear people say these things that you have thought and felt that you never imagined could be said out loud. And you start to, the the shame starts to crumble a little bit and you start to crave that truth because it's cathartic and you start to, you start to feel a connection to these people and their, their experience, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, whether you fight it or not, which I did. And so it was very slow and very reluctant. Um, and then I started to want, want it eventually. I wanted to know people who were going through what I was going through. I wanted to start to try to tell the truth. I wanted to, I was started to be okay saying like, I'm a little scared to go to this work event. I'm I'm scared to go on this trip to New York for work because I, I have always drank in the past and I don't know how to do this. Or like, how do I get through this weekend? This fucking sucks. Yeah. How do I do this? Um, so it was like that. It's very, it was very slow, very tentative. I still don't like it. I still don't like admitting that I need help. Uh, I still don't like asking for help. I still don't like counting myself into a group. I just, it's still hard for me. Do you feel like you're, I mean, are you an introvert? Yeah, I am, but it's not, that's not it. That's not it's what just, it was. No, it's not. It's just this deep seated desire to be self-sufficient and mm-hmm. smart enough. Yeah. And yeah. capable enough to do it on my own. I think part of that too, is like, you know, the society we are raised in, whatever you got positive affirmations for as a child, like for me, it was you're competent, you're responsible, you can deal with things. Um, you know, to some extent, um, my husband was like, some version of you don't have mental health issues, you know, based on previous relationships, like, Mm -hmm. oh, you're so positive, and, you know, Mm -hmm. just deal with life. And so when I found myself struggling with my mental health, because I was drinking, and or maybe I was drinking because I was struggling with my mental health. I was like, I can't say anything about it or admit it because then that's one of the things that people love about me, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I do know. Yeah. It's it's a lot of that too, for sure. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep. It is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. 
Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. One of the things I love about your nine things that you lay out really clearly in Push Off From Here is you the nine things sort of go through a lot of the resistance that people have to giving up alcohol or to admitting this is your thing in terms of it's not your fault, kind of what you start with, you Mm -hmm. go into the idea that, you know, addiction can be seen as you called it ritualized compulsive comfort seeking, which is a normal response to adversity. And I thought that was really helpful. And I hadn't really thought about it that way before that, of course, you have gone down this road and you need to have self-compassion and healing. It's not Mm -hmm. your fault. Yeah. It's hard for, I mean, I I think that I, I know those weren't my exact words. I I know that's a quote, Mm -hmm. um, the ritualized compulsive comfort seeking. I loved how that was phrased because it's comfort seeking that, you know, we're, we're always just trying to get our needs met. We're trying to get out of the pain that we're in or avoid it. We're trying to make connections. We're trying to not, you know, to, to do what we need to do to get what we need and want. And it's the most human thing in the world to do that. And alcohol's everywhere and it's accessible and it's largely seen as no big deal um, and celebrated and, and all of that. And so, of course, there are second to you can't do it alone. It's not your fault was was the hardest for me to yeah. allow myself to believe because it sounded so victim-y. Mm, um, yeah. You know, and I felt so terrible and shitty about what I had done to people, which those things were real. Yeah. You know, I had behaved in ways that I that were devastating to me, to the people around me. I lied, I cheated, I, you know put people in, I was flaky. I put people in my, including my daughter in danger. You know, I, I made people wonder about me all the time. I, I worried a lot of people and I felt terrible about those things. And so, you know, we largely think that the way that we're going to change is to punish ourselves and we can't allow ourselves to believe that I couldn't, I had been raised in this very, you know, personal responsibility is the ultimate thing forever. And anything that sounds like victim speak is going to like, it's just not allowed. And so I, I had to work through a lot to to allow that. I think the culture has softened a bit there, at least in sobriety circles. It's We've talked started to talk about it a lot differently in the past 10 years. And I think that that – I mean, maybe it's just because I'm on the inside of it not and not the outside. Yeah. But I do believe it's starting to change. Or, or I thought when I said, if I said to myself, this is not my fault, that it 
was very victim-y, but also that it wouldn't allow me to actually change. Like Mm. that wasn't going to get me there. I had to just like suck it up and fix it. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's interesting that you said that you think that starting to change in recovery circles, but I think also in society at large. I mean, to some extent, you talked about in the book, how finally the conversation is shifting, especially around women and alcohol from like, a them Mm -hmm. problem to a we problem, meaning the prevalence of alcohol in society is sort of a public health issue. And the idea that we need to put warning labels on, you know, alcoholic beverages, the way we do with smoking, One thing I thought was interesting, you actually start the introduction of Push Off From Here by, you know, giving a brief cultural history of addiction Mm -hmm. recovery and the impact of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I know is where you started. But when you were talking about the idea of it's not your fault and how we're sort of coming to accept that more in recovery circles... I attended AA for a while and you talk about in the book that that there is a certain aspect where in AA it is seen as your fault, meaning it's a disease and you're powerless against it. But there's also a lot of within the 12 steps of moral inventory and and, you know, you versus them. What, why did you start off that way? Yeah, well, just to make comment on that, I think I think what. It's not, I don't have any issue with the 12 steps. I actually think they're beautiful. But what's missing in that story is just the context that we have now about trauma, about all the things that impact why someone might drink problematically or, or fall into any addiction of any kind. We just, that wasn't known information then. And so there's a huge part of that story that is just missing yeah from fr- within a culture and it's not even their fault you know it's just that that information wasn't available at the time and and what we know now is that there's a significant correlation to adverse childhood experiences or aces and and trauma um in whether or not someone will become addicted to substances and that's a huge part of it's not your fault you know, it's yeah. a, it's, it can't be overstated. And, and the other part that's missing, the other piece of context is the cultural part. You know, they, there's <laughs> a, we can't say enough about how I spend a lot of time talking about the culture of alcohol because you just can't overstate what the messaging does to someone who becomes addicted when this is the most normalized everywhere, accessible in all places. Of, and and not just accessible, but like stamp of approval. Yeah. Like you absolutely should be doing this if you're doing it right. Like what that does to someone who then fails to do it right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's the part that's missing. The reason I started the book with that as part of a big part of the introduction is because it's, I think it's just really important context to understand where this book fits in with all the other books about addiction and recovery i wanted to to under to to sort of bring people um into the present um with context yeah what you know how did we 
I, I could say all these things, but they, but they don't mean much unless you understand where we're coming from. And um, that's why I did that. And I also think it's just really interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of times recovery books will be compared to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't want this to be that. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to explain why, why it's not that, but also why, what, you know, what the shortcomings and criticisms are of, of AA in my view. Yeah. And I think that it's important because AA is still in popular culture, but also you mentioned in medical and therapy and mental health circles, like the thing people are aware of, like the 80, 800 pound gorilla or whatever it is. So a lot of people Mm -hmm. aren't aware of any other recovery pathways or they're not seen as legitimate. Yeah, they're not even, most people aren't even aware of the fact that when they talk about recovery in this country, they are using language from AA. Yeah. That it's just, it is the culture. It's not even, it's it's just the water that we've been swimming in. And that's, that's not even necessarily a bad thing, but it has some bad parts um, or some negative parts or some limiting parts. You know, culture does dictate so much. And unless you say like, this is where we got the language that we use when, what do people say when, you know, you, you, if someone has a drinking problem, what's the first thing that someone says to do go to a meeting? Yeah. Well, they're talking about an AA meeting and they've seen these meetings portrayed in films since like the sixties and there's all this language and, and people kind of have an idea what the 12 steps are, there's God involved and there's amends and you're working your program. And so all this language, which has become the language of recovery. And like you said, not just in recovery circles, but in the medical system, in popular culture, in movies and film in Hollywood, in um, everywhere. It's not, I mean, you go to your therapist. Yes. Chances are that's unless they are really embroiled in in the recovery process they're they're not going to recommend anything outside of AA they're yeah that, that's and the idea of it's this binary choice i mean i've heard of many you know people i know who have raised the question of their drinking or worried about it and their doctor or their therapist or someone else has said well you're not an alcoholic do you know what i mean and mm-hmm. so it was, you know, it's just starting to change that people are actually becoming aware of the alcohol use disorder spectrum, where it's not black and white. And like you said, it's just part of the culture that most people aren't even aware of that is based off that program. Exactly. And so when something defines what we think it means to be sober, what it means to have an addiction, (laughs) when it just when it when when something defines our entire experience we we don't question it until you like zoom way out and then you can start to go well where did this even come from and who said it and why yeah. and and that's important it's really yeah. important and yes so that's those were the reasons i wanted to go through yeah. that and one you know you mentioned we were talking about the culture we're living in and a section in push up from here talks about the mass delusion of alcohol culture. 
I thought this one line was really interesting. I wanted to read it to you because I hadn't thought of the word gaslighting as related to this before and thinking about the Mm -hmm. years that I struggled with drinking and trying to control it and not controlling it. And literally my main thought was what the fuck is wrong with me? Like that was the, the coursing through my veins. And you wrote the way alcohol is socially accepted and celebrated is a form of gaslighting. It leads us to believe that when someone struggles to control their alcohol use, it's a failure of the individual rather than the natural result of ingesting a highly addictive substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy, but one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. I just Um, thought that like the word gaslighting And you said, I want to relieve you from the gaslighting effect of such a widespread cultural delusion, misinformation, and social acceptance around alcohol. You are not the problem. You are not broken. You are part of a broken paradigm. Yep. Yes. And that is a very different message than what I came into sobriety thinking. I mean, it's been written about since then quite a lot. Hollywood occurred definitely, um, I would say, in many ways, pioneered and sort of really pushed the 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 edge on this in her book, Quit Like a Woman, and her other work. Um, Annie Grace has done that. It's something that was not said ever before that. You know, it was, um, you're the problem, fix it. You know, there, there, there's nothing wrong with what's going on here. It's that you can't handle your alcohol. You have this thing. Uh, you have this thing called alcoholism. I don't know what to tell you. And yeah, we don't. You know, it's just what it is. And and us normies are fine, <laughs> and you're not. And that's just the way it is. Tough. Well, shit. and the alcohol but- industry has been fighting very, very hard for decades to keep that as the narrative, as the one hundred prevailing wisdom. Um, yeah, I talked to Holly on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and, and I completely agree. I think I've told you I started out, I mean, before I stopped drinking, probably in the months before taking walks at work, listening to the home podcast, it was a huge mm-hmm. part of yeah. sort of my path of like yeah. hearing other women, my age 
talking about drinking and stopping drinking and and you talking about motherhood. And then I actually took Holly's hip sobriety school way back in the day when I was 60 days alcohol free. I think I was her third class. So um, that, I mean, what you're, when I was reading your book and that approach and talking about the gaslighting and our culture, I mean, it was such a breath of fresh air to hear that and understand that as I was a sociology major in college and American history. Like I'm used to studying the effects of society on our culture and what we believe and how we behave. And I was like, oh my God, this puts the pieces together for me and did help me, you know, internalize before you ever wrote this, the idea of it's not your fault. Yeah. Yes. I think, and that's so awesome. And I'm so glad that that is, I think a lot of people that are get I've gotten so, a lot of women definitely, because this messaging hits different for, for women, I think. Yeah. Um, there's just added layers and complexities to it, especially mothers. But yeah, I think that you can't talk about addiction or sobriety without talking about this mm-hmm. anymore. You just can't as it, when it, as it relates to alcohol. Yeah. And I think that it's really opened the conversation to people who aren't, you know, don't get to the point where I know mm-hmm. I got and you got where you're like, I mean, I was like, oh, shit, this is going to screw up my life. Um, but a lot of people now, I mean, you look at the articles, right, in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Dry January and Women in Alcohol and the Today Show. I mean, it really does it's starting to shift in society around the idea of a public health issue. And that's huge because it's getting people sort of early intervention, like, yeah, you know, Hey, you're stage one breast cancer or diabetes or something else. Yeah, no, totally. It's, it's for the first time, um, major news publication came out and said, look, the alcohol industry Big alcohol has been ga- has been gaslighting you, mm-hmm. and they've been t- feeding you these messages for the past 30, 40, 50 years that are just straight up not true. And there is no safe amount of alcohol. Period. Not you know, alcohol in moderation can be healthy, is healthy, which is what we yeah. were raised thinking is good for you. <laughs> is good for you. I mean, those are the those are th- those things are actually being said now. Big you know platform science based platforms like. Andrew Huberman's podcast have done episodes about like the massive effects, negative effects of alcohol on the brain and body. And even, even he, as he's going through it, is like apologizing and like saying, I hate to break this to you. I'm so sorry. I trust me, I'm not judging anybody, but this is just the reality. And I couldn't believe it either when I got into the literature. Do what you want with this information, but even the recommended one drink a day for a woman. Yeah, it actually does have cancer. Yeah. 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 So it is, it is changing slowly. It is there's, you know, and, and there's ever other places where this is becoming evident, the rise of all the non-alcoholic drink choices, non-alcoholic bars. We know that millennials and, and younger are drinking less. So it's, it's good. It's trending in the right direction ever so slowly. Yeah. And unfortunately, like baby boomers and Gen X, which I am, 
are the biggest drinkers, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's really amazing. So, and I think that also, when you talk about the culture, when we were coming up, it was, it was so ingrained in what oh, yeah. we did and how we bonded and our friends and, and alcohol's addictive. So you, so you map that out 20, 30, 40 years, and it's hard to kind of climb out of that hole. Yeah, you look at any movie or show that's on now that depicts a woman my age, 40, in her 40s, she has a glass of wine in her hands, always. And I mean, it used to fire me up so bad, but now I, I'm just like, God, really? That's so lame. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about in the book is you talk about moderation, harm reduction, and abstinence and your views mm-hmm. on that. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I wanted to be clear that where I stood in this book and where I, where the, my community, the luckiest club stands. And I think harm reduction is there's a lot more we need to know about that. I, I, I'm a fan of harm reduction as a way to eventually get sober and abstinent for good. Um, but I wanted to communicate that this isn't a book that's going to help you learn how to manage alcohol, how to control it, how to drink in safety, how to drink less. That's not what this book is. There are many books and communities that are in service of that. This is not one of them. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is not based on some like moral issue or even hard science. Like I don't, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a clinician. It's solely based on the fact that in my experience and in the experience of many people that I have been witness to, there's just no amount of alcohol. I I can't imagine wasting the energy and time to figure out how to fit a few ounces of liquid into my body every day, week, whatever, so that I could moderate it. Yeah. And giving that and giving up what I got from sobriety. Just the, the exchange is it doesn't make sense. There's just no, I would not want to forsake what I have been given, which is everything just to figure out how to keep alcohol in my life somehow. So that's, that's why I talk about that. And and I wanted to be clear about that because, because I wanted to be clear about it. You know, there's, there's books that are about that. This isn't one of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And I also, you know, I do one-on-one coaching and women come to me and I'm like, just to be clear, I am not a moderation coach. So if your goal is to drink two glasses twice a week, I'm not the right coach for you. And the reason is that almost anyone who comes to this point has been trying to moderate for years and years and years and years. Totally. And you talk about that mental load that's required to plan and monitor and adjust and control and manage the ideal alcohol intake, it absorbs so much of your life that you don't have space to move forward. And you don't ever address those like inherent 
unconscious, subconscious limiting beliefs that alcohol is so important that you couldn't possibly eliminate it from your life. And that's a lot of the work you need to do to actually get away from the hold it has on you. Um, So I'm glad you wrote about that. Um, But tell me about harm reduction, because a lot of people confuse harm reduction with moderation, right? It kind of looks the same. Yeah, I'm not a harm reduction expert by any stretch, but harm reduction is, it can be titrating your use down over a period of time that's safe and also manageable to you given extenuating circumstances in your lives. I mean, look, some people are not in a situation physically, psychologically, emotionally where they can just stop yeah. even if even if it was easy to do which it's not they could they they're just not able to do that they might be um they might not have the physical environment that makes it possible they might be living in a dangerous situation they might be really acutely addicted and and it's dangerous for them to to just stop they there's a, there's a lot of reasons why it's not advisable even to do that so that's part of harm reduction. And then there's also, you know, people aren't usually aren't addi- only addicted to one thing. I know I was, I was into pills. I was into alcohol. I was into men. I was into a lot of, a lot of behaviors that were hurting me and harming me. Um, And some of the harm reduction model is to address one thing at a time. Yeah. Not yeah. to just to take away everything because it's not only typically impossible, um, but it's just too much too fast. It's not sustainable um, and, again, even dangerous. So that's that's part of what harm reduction is. And, you know, it's harm reduction is also Suboxone. People who um, have addiction to opiates get on Suboxone for a period of time to help them go through the withdrawal process and build up their their muscles for life. Yeah. So that they can eventually get off. There's and it's also like the, the goal, right? Not to keep the substance in your life in some way, but part of the process. Yes, exactly. Whereas moderation is the goal is to find this, in my view, very uh, false <laughs> sense of safety. It just sounds like hell to me, honestly. Like, yeah, well, I, it was could, hell. It was yeah, hell. I mean, I lived I, there unsuccessfully, yeah. failing on the regular basis and yeah. beating myself up for not being able to right control this addictive substance and keep it yeah. in my life. Yeah. No, it. I wasn't very interested in moderating. I always wanted to drink. I always wanted to drink to get drunk. Yeah. But of course I tried mechanisms to control, you know, I wanted to get to the very drunk part, but not the blackout part. I wanted to get to the, the very drunk part, but not the part where I woke up in strangers beds. I wanted, I wanted like to go as far as I could without all the, the big, bad, ugly consequences. Yes. So, so at some form, that is some form of moderation, I guess, but yeah, it's just hell. And um, this isn't that book. Yeah. One of the things I actually have so many friends and clients and people I know who love 
the luckiest club community oh, and group. And I great. actually recommend it all the time for people who are looking for finding other people on this path. And I think one of the things you mentioned in your book, but why it's so attractive is you wrote one of the guiding principles of the luckiest club is that sobriety isn't a punishment, but the beginning of the greatest adventure of your life when you make the brave rebellious choice to Mm -hmm. live without numbing yourself um, and working towards joy, freedom, and meaning. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a very different take than sort of the traditional view in society of what life when you are quote unquote sober, alcohol free, you've stopped drinking what that looks like. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Well, what I thought it would be. I always say I thought it would be like this at best, like this B version, you know, like a B movie, like no one really wants to live that plot. But if it's all you've got, I guess, I guess it'll do, you know, very boring, very lack devoid of color, very no, no real excitement or fun or love involved, just blah. And it, and yeah, as, as, as uh, we view it as a punishment. Yes. Largely, you know, or uh, this consequence, I guess, of just being really fucked up and not being able to control yourself. And When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety, and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. I I don't look at it that way. And I, it's, not, it's not my experience that that's what it is and not what we, not what yeah. we talk about in the Luckiest Club. Yeah. And it, people, you know, need and appreciate that positive aspect of it. I mean, getting real and sharing the hard parts, but also celebrating the differences between living alcohol-free versus living in the sort of like highs and lows and constant exhaustion of Mm -hmm. drinking, recovering from drinking, trying to piece together the night. One thing that hit me really hard in the book, and I recommend everybody read it because it's super powerful, is you did this very detailed two versions of a sober versus a drinking scenario Mm -hmm. of going out with your friends. 
And, you know, I actually read it to a client yesterday when I was talking to her because it was so true in terms of, you know, I have a couple of drinks before I go out. Um, I get there and I drink it too fast and no one else is close to finishing their drinks. I try to signal the, you know, the waiter to get a drink. I wake up at 3 a.m. People have texted me saying, are you okay? You know, all the the big things and the little things that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that make, I mean, the big, a big part of that is like, I'm not focused on anything that's hap- actually happening. I'm not focused on my friends or the conversation or being there and the food and all of that. I'm focused on when can I get my next drink? And then before I know it, I'm unconscious, blacked out at home, waking up, going, what the fuck happened? And that was every night that I went out for yeah. most of my, you know, twenties and thirties. Yeah. Versus a entirely different experience. I do want to say, you know, we don't I don't ever want want to veer into this toxic positivity land where it's like sobriety is just yeah. great. And there of course anyone who's touched my work, I hope, knows that. I very honest about the sadness and the grief and the it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get sober and it's not great all the time. Life isn't great all the time, but it's just real. It's it's living a a a, a real experience versus this like shellacked fake one that mm-hmm. you just work so hard to maintain. Yeah. Well, and one of the things you you just mentioned grief and I took some notes on that too because you know, I think that it's normal to feel sadness when you stop drinking. I mean, my therapist said to me in the beginning, like, it's been your most constant companion, more than your husband, more than your kids. You know, you take it everywhere with you. You hang out with it every night. Everything you do is with drinking. I mean, whatever it is. And you talk about how we're not seeing, it's not seen as you don't deserve to feel grief when people think you deserve the loss. I'm not yeah. stating it right, but I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, there's we have all these spoken and unspoken rules about who is allowed to feel grief under what circumstances. And al- <laughs> addiction is definitely not one of those cases where we are very allowing of people to feel grief about having to change yeah um at all whereas if you lose up you know lose somebody chances are people are going to be sorry for your loss and anticipate that you're going to go through grief and within that even there are more unspoken rules you know if you lose a parent that's elderly it's like okay we understand that but you're you know you don't get as big of an allotment of grief as you do if you were to lose uh a a child for example which is like the ultimate you know allowance of grief possible and so we have a lot of like i said unspoken and spoken beliefs about who's allowed to feel grief and people who get sober or have to get sober are not given much uh much allowance and when i grief, admitting that I was realizing and admitting that I was going through grief was like, holy shit, it was a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think that's one of the things, I mean, sort of all of these things is why you can't do it alone and you have to find other people who get it, which may not be your best friend or your partner or your mother or whoever it is, because, or even your therapist, if they haven't gone through it, like they can help you, but they won't understand the grief and the difficulty and why hitting day 14, which is the longest you've gone in five years is a Herculean feat, you know? That's right. Yeah. Yes. I talk about needing other noodles. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We call them noodles and TLC. Um, You know, we need people who get our experience exactly. And I always equate it to being a parent. If you try to survive raising children without talking to other parents, it would be damn near impossible. Yeah. Definitely lonely, hard um, from a practical and emotional level. You know, like, how do I do this thing? What happens here when my, you know, my kid won't sleep through the night? What do I do to just not, we, we need each other. And so we don't just need people. We need our people. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you call them noodles? <laughs> it's the Your silly fellow story. travelers, right? Yeah. There's it's silly and it just sort of took uh it in in TLC. Um, but it came from when I was getting sober, I was talking to this woman after a meeting once or on the phone or something, I don't know, and I was telling her, like explaining all my mental gymnastics about whether or not I should go to this work event and like should I go, you know, the, all the things we do, should I go? Should I not go? Am I, who, what will I order? Do I want to order a Diet Coke or a club soda and lime? If this, if my boss asks me if I'm not drinking, what am I going to say? Versus if my, you know, coworker, like my best friend at work asked me if I'm not drinking, what do I say to them? And, and just these like, oh my God, all the things that we have to think about and that that feel like it feels crazy when you're going through it. It feels like a lot. And I remember just going like verbally dumping on her and going, I'm sorry, that's just a lot. Like who does this? She's like, uh, all of us. You're just, a, she said, you're just another noodle in the soup. I yeah. was like, Oh, that's so great. <laughs> and it's funny. <laughs> right. So exactly. Yeah, so just another noodle in the soup. So when, when, uh, we started TLC. We started calling ourselves and the other members noodles, and it just kind of stuck. Yeah. In your questions that you write about, I mean, like I said, I circled almost all of them, but how do you know if alcohol is your thing? Um, I mean, some of the questions I was like, duh, <laughs> in a in mm-hmm. a way that I suppose some people don't answer, but like, have you worried about how much you like to drink? Are you anxious or irritable if you can't drink when you want to? This one, maybe do you rush through making dinner or other activities so you can get to the part where you can drink? Does almost everyone you know drink? Do you feel like you'd lose your social life? I was like, yep, yep, yep. (laughs) You know, when I was. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to get at the feelings underneath really. Yeah. Um, Because it's not always about you know, one of the, the first, I think the first question you read is like, it's not, do you worry about how much you drink, but do you worry about how much you like to drink? Yes. That was that my bigger it. tip off. It was like, I really like this. Like, like on a, 
like lustful <laughs> level. Yes. Like I need this type of thing. Yeah. It scared me or way yeah. early, way early. Yeah. When you mentioned that the first book you ever read was Drinking a Love Story by Carolyn Knapp. And mm-hmm. that was mine too. Like even the name of it, yeah. I was like, yes, it's a love story. Yes. And I love it so much that I don't, yep. I need to control it so that I yep. never have to. So I can not. keep it. And it's kind of a toxic relationship. It's a toxic boyfriend totally. that you kind of have to get away from, you know? Totally. Just if a person clearly. did what <laughs> did what alcohol does to us, we would uh, not want to be around it at all. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's a lot of uh, people's first book that are our age because it was it was one of very few that were out there by women. Yeah. For a long time. And she said yeah. a lot of things before any of us ever said anything. And she also happens to be a phenomenal writer. Yeah. No, I loved it. I felt so much understanding and comfort. And yet it was also a cautionary tale because I read it a good eight years before I stopped yep. drinking. So it's that idea of like, well, I'm not there, you know, so yeah, same. you go back and forth, um, you know, and you don't have to have all those experiences or get to that point to be like, yeah, this sounds familiar, you know? No, no, you don't yeah. at all. Well, so tell me what you want anyone listening to this who might be in the early phases of questioning their drinking or in early sobriety or sort of that tough place of going back and forth and changing their mind, like what would you like them to know? Hmm. I think you just need to know that it's going to be okay. Hmm. There's just this fear of looking at it, thinking about it, talking about it. Like it's, it's going to be okay. And 99% of the things that you think are going to happen if you stop drinking won't, or they'll just be different than you think. Uh, I begin and end the book with saying it is by every account, the best thing that's ever happened to me is falling into this addiction and having to get sober. Um, and you, you can't hear that oftentimes for a long time. You don't believe it. You can't hear it. But if you can just let any amount of that seep in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's going to be okay. Yeah. It's going to be okay. And not only can you, you know, not do it alone, but you're not alone. I mean, there are yeah. so many people just like you who are struggling with this, but also on the other side who felt exactly like you did. So, you know, like you said, it's not your fault, but there's also nothing wrong with you. It just is. It's your thing, right? It's your thing. We all have things. That's, that's the other part. Like this thing isn't any weirder or, or embarrassing or gross or strange or it's just another thing. We all go through, go, go through stuff. No. So no, you're not, you're not alone. And to me, that wasn't necessarily comforting um, because I think I like we all want to think that we're sort of special. Like no one could actually understand my insides, my life and how I feel. And so you aren't alone. And um, 
this experience is will meet you where you are. Like I hate to say it, you're not that special. Like you're important, but you're not that special. And that's good news. It's not bad yeah. news. Because yeah. in this process, you you are gonna find what does make you so fantastic and unique and extraordinary. Yeah. Drinking is the most boring thing ever. Yeah. It it really is. Like it really, really is if you think about it. Oh my God. I mean, I remember like thinking, oh, you know, my husband's going to think I'm so boring if I don't drink. And the worst, like I'm going to be boring or even worse, I'm going to be bored. Like, oh yeah, it's going to be bored. That's I remember thinking like, what do people do who don't drink? Do they just sit there in silence and like stare at each other, which is so crazy, but that's what I believed. And of course. when I think back, I'm like, oh yeah, because me getting drunk alone on the couch and passing out, like that was super exciting for my husband. Like that was, <laughs> yeah, awesome, you know? Yeah. I know we get our perspective gets very warped. Yeah. Like what, like what do you do if you're not drinking? 10% of the time was exciting. <laughs> 90% of the time was pretty lame. It was pretty lame, pretty boring, pretty, pretty sad. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, I have to tell you, I was thrilled when I got to the end of the book and I saw you recommended this podcast. Yes. So thank you so much for doing so that. Welcome. It's such an honor. Yeah, you're so welcome. I it comes up a lot and I know that I I love that you're doing it. Um and yeah, of course, I'm happy to I was happy. I was so happy to be able to list so many resources. Yeah. That didn't exist 5 years ago. Yeah. I mean, the world is really changing and that is awesome. Just as yeah. the the conversation grows. Like it's not a secret that you have to seek out and and never talk about anymore. It's part of, you know, one thing I love is, you know, I've heard from lots of people that this is a podcast that they can send to their girlfriends or their mother or their sister as part of like an intelligent discussion about the ways we cope and whether it's working. It's not sort of Oh my God, you know, when I read Drinking a Love Story, I was so terrified that anyone would know I was worried about my drinking. I would like read it on my Kindle and then open four other books. So it would be like pushed down in my queue in case my (laughs) husband lifted up my Kindle. I mean, my God, the amount of secrecy around it was insane. Mm -hmm. Well, you're bringing down the shame you know, that that's what you're doing. And, and and that's amazing. Well, so are so many other people. And I know your books help so much. They're hugely popular. TLC is amazing. I have so many friends who love it. So thank you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be on here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more.
Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.